it's up to the person to decide whether to follow the momentum of where it's taking you or to resist it and stay focused on the goal. Either one of those decisions are good. Either one of them can work. But if something in the process was profound enough to stop you, take a look at what that is and where it's steering you and maybe follow that. just uh, come out and say it. We have a full-on icon here this week. This is Let It Out. I'm Katie. This week, I have a conversation over Zoom. I just recorded it and I'm putting it out really quickly after with designer legend Norma Kamali. She spoke to me from her office in Manhattan and In this conversation, you'll hear she has so much wisdom and perspective and she's really gentle and she gives me sage advice on everything from aging to dating and we get into how she sees generations and the decades that she's worked through over her career and lived through and we talk about her changing industry. I hope I did her career and her life justice in this conversation because she's truly one of the most interesting people I've spoken to and she's seen so much over her career and there was a lot to cover and honestly, I got a bit overwhelmed and I didn't know how much time I would have with her, but she was incredibly generous with her time. But even after talking to her for over two hours total with what was recorded and what wasn't, it would not have been enough time because I could have asked her a million more questions about everything from working at the airlines in the 1960s. She equates the airlines at that time to being like working for tech companies now. You know, they were the Apple or the Google of back then where everyone sort of wanted to to work. And she learned so much from that experience. And we get into that a little bit, but she would fly back and forth to London every weekend because she got a deal. And I could have asked her so much more about that time because there was this big cultural revolution happening in London. And I read that she was going to shows and hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and coming back to New York with these suitcases of clothing for her friends, which eventually led her to opening a shop and eventually making her own designs, including some very famous pieces like the red one-piece swimsuit that Farrah Fawcett is wearing on the iconic poster we've all seen which I read that swimsuit is actually in a permanent collection at the Smithsonian Museum. She also popularized hot pants, as you'll hear. She didn't wear underwear for most of the 70s. And I could have asked her so much more about how she met Bette Midler, who 
ended up narrating her first fashion show and she gave clothes to when she didn't have any money to buy them and how Bill Cunningham came to her first fashion show and was taking photos and no one knew who any of them were, but he pulled Norma aside, Bill Cunningham, who is a real favorite here. And he said to her, dearie, someday they'll understand. And that line really stuck with me. And then eventually her shop moved to Madison Avenue and she began making suits and more tailored pieces for people like Cher and Bianca Jagger. And then, you know, she becomes a part of the fabric of modern American fashion design. And up until that point, about the 1960s, most of the main fashion brands were European until her and her peers like Ralph Lauren and... Calvin Klein and Donna Karen made fashion in America. <laughs> there are so many stories that I found when I was preparing for this that I wanted to prompt her to tell because she has so many good stories and it feels like a time capsule getting to speak to her. And I'm so bummed that I didn't get to talk to her more about camping because she's probably most known for her sleeping bag coat. It was worn by the doorman at Studio 54, and then people thought that if they also wore it, hoping to get in, perhaps that would increase their chances of getting inside, and I think it worked, so people did, and apparently she has always loved camping, and she got the idea for this design, which you know was truly and is still really widely worn. She makes a new one every single year. But now people wear puffer jackets all the time. But at that time, it was something that people really only wore skiing. So she really changed the game there and in so many ways. But she got the idea for it when she was camping and she woke up needing to go to the bathroom and she didn't want to be cold. So she didn't want to get out of her sleeping bag. So she didn't. She dug it with her. She wore it. And when she got back to the city, she cut it up, made a coat, bought a ton of sleeping bags, and that's how she came up with this iconic design that people still wear today. I really love hearing that sort of idea and process of a creative project, and I wish I could have had her tell every single one of her stories, but... Without further ado, here's her telling a bunch of stories in my conversation with iconic designer Norma Kamali. We start talking a little bit about her mom, who sounds incredible. Both her dad and her stepdad died when Norma was 13. Here's that conversation. Like I said, I'm really grateful that she was here. I'm really grateful that you were here and I will talk to you at the end. Wow, I said this to you before we started recording, but I'm just so excited to meet you. And when I was preparing for this, it was really nice to spend the last couple of days with you reading about your work and listening to you on other shows. And I really like the way that you speak about your life trajectory with this sort of ease and peacefulness that maybe comes with perspective and time but I just, hearing your voice felt really comforting and I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here too. 
Can we start talking a little bit about what you were like growing up? I know you were close with your mom and I think she helped you when you started making clothes. Is is that right? Yep, she did. I think all girls go through different periods of their lives where they're very close to their moms. They're very influenced by their moms. And then they decide they're independent. They don't need to be so close and they don't need their mothers to sort of hold their hands. And and then there's a coming back together again part of our lives. And I think my relationship with my mother was really very powerful when I was a girl because I was able to see what a woman who believed that there were no barriers to what she could be able to do in her life looked like. And so I really had no idea of how important that influence would be on me and that she believed anything was possible and nothing really got in her way. She was very strong-minded, very talented. But of course, she was born in 1915. And so that's like the turn of the century. That's a different life completely. So by the time she was an adult, she was still in a world where a woman's place was very clear and the chances of breaking out of that of her running a company or the head of a company would not even be a dream. It it was still very early for that dream to even manifest itself. So I fortunately was able to see the power of her determination and be influenced by it. Mm, I'm so glad that that you had that. And when you think about being a kid or a teenager, were you always fascinated with fashion and clothes or did that come later? Did you have any idea of what you wanted to be or how you wanted to be when you were older? You grew up in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So again, my mother, with her many talents, many, many, many talents, one was oil painting, the other was she could prepare a dish from anywhere around the world in the most authentic way possible. She sewed costumes for different things that were happening in our neighborhood. They were extraordinary costumes. She built doll houses. She did a lot. But one of the things that I think she did that really showed her ability to transcend what was expected, right, was the ability to do all of these things. And fashion was seen through movies at the time, not necessarily through fashion magazines. Yes, Vogue was a very elite magazine, but the movie books, the movie tabloid books were where women looked at what people were wearing, but the movies themselves were very influential 
And so she was an avid moviegoer and her style and her look at fashion really came through movies. She made the clothes that she saw in movies for herself. And she was also a hairdresser for a while and she would do Marcel waves and all of that. And I guess when I was in my teens, when we all get rebellious, she and I had completely different tastes when it came to clothes. And that's when we started to struggle about what my style was and what she thought it should be. But when I did open my business, she really was there for me to help me create the styles that she couldn't stand, quite frankly. She couldn't get, she didn't like any of them, but she helped me because she saw the opportunity in um, what I was doing. Mm, Wow. That's, that just, I mean, first of all, she sounds like such an incredible woman who's so multi-talented and good at so many things, really uh, the opposite of a master of none. Sounds like someone who was able to do so much so well. And wow, that really speaks to her character that she was and how much she loved you, that she was able to help you even when it wasn't her vision for you. Like that's love, right? Yeah. That's so beautiful. You worked at Northwest Airlines. I think that was pretty early before and as you were starting your career in fashion. And I think it relates because you were able to fly cheaply back and forth to London. Can you talk about how you got that job and what that time in your life was like? I graduated from FIT with a major in fashion illustration. And I I felt really good about my portfolio. But the jobs that were available and the circumstances I found very unappealing when I finally did get out there. And I think there are circumstances that happen in your life that push you into the direction you should be going in. So I had a job interview that was really just a situation that Uh, I was objectified in by the person, by the guy who was interviewing me. And I just ran out and in tears, literally. And I decided that I did not want to be in fashion. I did not want to be in this industry. And that maybe I should travel to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. So I looked in um, at the times you would look at the New York Times classified section. And there was a job listed at Northwest Airlines, and I had no office skills whatsoever. And I don't know how I got the job, but thankfully I did. And I was able to travel round trip to London for four years every weekend for $29 and conveniently had me in the right place at the right time, which was London as it was transforming from a very gray city to a very colorful, exciting place where just this revolution took place and things that had never been seen before were appearing and there was a real dramatic 
turn in a direction of just everything new and a real revolution. And I fortunately was there and I was very influenced by it and became a very, I became a part of it actually. And then I started to bring back clothes that I found in London. Mini skirts were non-existent before then. Nobody in history wore their skirts above their knees prior to that period. And so I was bringing back clothes that nobody had ever seen before. And then eventually so many people were asking me to bring them back that I opened a store and started selling the clothes in the store. And then within a short time, I had ideas of what I would like to see in fashion. And that's how I started having a business with the, that was based on fashion. Wow. So you're working full-time at Northwest Airlines during the week, and then you would fly out to London. So what I did was you could do shifts at the airline, and I took the shift that everybody hated. And when you took that shift, you actually got an extra day because of the way the hours worked out. So I would leave Thursday night and come back Monday. So I would work and I also sewed and made the clothes on the time that I wasn't working during the week because there are 24 hours to a day. And I married very young. I married at 19. So my husband at the time who was going to Columbia sold the clothes in the store. And so that's how we started. And then after a certain amount of time, I obviously had to leave the airline because the business was growing and I needed to make those clothes and have a sample room where people were helping me. So that's actually how it began. That time sounds so full. And I think something that I related to and I thought was cool about you and your career is how respectful you were to the airlines of, you know, you knew that it was giving you so much. So you were very respectful of your time there. Was that time in your life fun? I mean, are you nostalgic for anything about that time? Well, first of all, the more you do, the more you can do. So that's, that's a, that's for sure a motto that I believe in. But I'm, I'm not nostalgic about the time because I was very lucky to be in the right time at the right uh, and the right place. Thanks to this guy who made a direction that I was going in that I thought was the right direction impossible for me to even think about. So I think the universe does take us on a road. This, when I then had the business, it was very exciting because I discovered that I could be a fashion designer. So my next, the next road that I was traveling was terribly exciting. And I was discovering a skill that I didn't realize I had, and I loved every minute of it. And so I think what happens in each decade of your life, this road that you're supposed to be going on, 
hits bumps, but sometimes those bumps take you off in another direction that are really where you should be going. So I have been very fortunate in my life to be in the right place at the right time throughout the decades. So I'm I'm not nostalgic, except I'm so grateful that I was in my life in a place where a cultural revolution was taking place and that I was not only witness to it, but I was participating in it. And so that's my feeling about the time. I think other things have happened in my life that are equally dynamic and impressive for me, but I'm not nostalgic about it. And I tend not to be a nostalgic person, but I do uh, am fully appreciative of the excitement of being in uh, the right place at the right time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say at the beginning when I was complimenting how I like the way you talk about your career and your life and look back of this, because I believe that too. And I've seen that so far in my life of, you know, I never could have expected where I am now and even planned to be here, but it's actually pretty great. There's this Agnes DeMille quote, right? Where they say, living is a form of not being sure not knowing what's next or how, and the moment you know how, you begin to die a little. And I feel like your trajectory worked in a way that you kept following what was working and going in the direction that you were being led. With that, you know, how much planning and how much following what's in front of you? Because I tend to believe that so much of it is out of our control, but if we if we listen and are quiet enough to sort of hear our intuition through it, that's how we can gently move forward in it. So is that something you've, you know, it sounds like you even had that all the way back then. Is that something that comforts you? I think it's important to have a goal and to have a dream and to sort of have a plan for how to reach that goal. And then it's important to keep in mind that everything is going to go in all kinds of directions and sometimes not in the direction that you have planned. And it's up to the person to decide whether to follow the momentum of where it's taking you or to resist it and stay focused on the goal. Either one of those decisions are good. Either one of them can work. Sometimes I've noticed that it's better to have the goal, strive for it, But if the pull to go some other way, like that job interview that went wrong, if something in the process was profound enough to stop you, take a look at what that is and where it's steering you and maybe follow that. So 
I don't think anything just happens on its own. I think it takes a lot of effort to have things moving. Things don't happen for you or to you without some energetic determination to make something happen. So within that context, then you can either be pushed off the road you're going on because something happens that's profound and disarming, or the road can be modified and you can do nuances of a different approach, which is often very helpful if you're planning something and something looks like a a smarter path to take on that road. But I think you have to be moving. You have to be determined. You have to have the dream and the goal and all of that for anything to happen. Because if you just stay still in your home, waiting for something to happen, and this is with relationships too, I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. I really like that. You were an active participant in everything that you've created. And also you kept moving. Do you ever listen to or read Abraham Hicks? No. Basically, what you were describing of keep going and just go in some sort of direction and you'll always be rerouted like a GPS. Like it might, you'll get, you have to be moving for it to be able to reroute. And I think about that all the time because I liked what you said. Like there's one way to do it. Neither are wrong. You can move upstream and stay focused on your plan A or you can navigate to plan B and eventually comes into plan A or who knows, but either works, but moving and having an idea and an ambition is still critical to both options. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, some of these choices that you make can be bad choices. And that's not a terrible thing either, because Having the experience of a bad choice informs you about better choices in the future. When you're in your 20s, the chance of making bad choices is very high because you have no experience in determining what a good choice or a bad choice is. And so your 20s are very informative in seeing not only defining what choices look like and if they're good or bad, but also who you are in these circumstances and how you deal with them, how you interact with others, how you are as a human being. And so the 20s are really helpful in this plan and why it's important to have the plan is because you're first experience with a dream and a plan is where you learn about you, how you behave, how you act when something good happens, how you act when something bad happens. A lot of people in their 20s think a problem is the end of the world. And basically, a problem is just life and how you get through it. So, that this is a time, especially at the beginning of this adventure, to learn about how you behave in these circumstances. And it's really, really important that you start early. You can even start in your teens to discover 
how you are in the group. How are you in with a group of friends? Which friend are you? Are you the leader friend? Are you the funny friend? Are you the the friend who looks after everyone and takes care of it? How are you identified in that group? And it's incredibly telling because very much those early traits become a part of the choice you make as an adult, whether in your career or in your personal life, but very often in the the work you choose to do. Yeah. Do you feel like you have a choice that you would say now was a wrong choice or even you knew then was a wrong choice that you look back on? I made a lot of wrong choices that maybe didn't seem like the wrong choice at the time, but became the wrong choice, that the circumstance became the wrong circumstance. And because that happened doesn't mean you don't take chances and you don't make choices. But what's more important is how do you survive that mistake? How do you get out of it? Do you just give up and say, well, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not good at this. I'm I'm not going to, it's not for me. It's how do you get out of it successfully? How do you get back up on your feet again? How do you use that information for the future? And how how did that information inform you about choices going forward? If you don't make bad choices, not that you purposely want to do it, but if you don't have the experience of making bad choices, how are you going to know what a bad choice is or how that choice should not be one of the future? Or maybe that choice is better in the future and not currently. So life experience can't be replaced by anything else. And so having these experiences make you more and more valuable as you age. And as you become more experienced, so the 22-year-old at 45 is much more informed, more powerful, more effective, and even at 65 is still learning more and more about life and is more powerful and, and effective. Every day of experience is the most valuable thing you can acquire in a lifetime. And choices are the, you know, the choices get better. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Like we'll be the most self-aware we ever are right before we die. Right. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. You got married when you were 19 and your business was very interlinked with your, with your husband. Then can you talk about that in those early years and what it felt like for you in New York then? I was born in 1945. So I was 19 in 1964. This is Mad Men time. Remember the series Mad Men? Of course. Think about the relationship between men and women. Think about the place in a woman's life. Basically, she could be a secretary. And she sort of was like a bit of a cupid doll because the corsets that were, you know, lifting her breasts and holding in her waist and 
which we actually see today coming <laughs> as part of our culture today. But at the time, garter belts and girdles and stockings and high heels and corsets and dressing in a certain way that might want you to think we were dressing for men, but we were also living at a time where wearing a hat and gloves and that defined almost the way you could interpret what women were about or the way women were perceived. So that was that was what was going on. And I, like I said, became a part of the counterculture to that. And I had a mother who was quite different, right? She was the she was her behavior was counterculture. So the idea of opening a store, or first of all, of traveling, not that many people traveled that. Traveling on a plane was a very big deal. But the idea of traveling to me and traveling on my own was not anything I was afraid of or I thought wasn't appropriate. I found it the most exciting thing in the world. And the idea of being in London every weekend and people actually there thought I lived there because a lot of people see friends on weekends because they work during the week. So I was I was very present through that period of time and I was living almost two lives. I was in a world where the music, the clothes, the energy, everything was so electric. And then I would come back and work in an office at, at an airline, which was as restrictive and very controlled and very disciplined. And there was very little room for working outside of the box. So this was life. I had these two lives. And then getting married at 19, I got married because, quite frankly, my mother was going through menopause. This was one of those periods, you know, where mothers and daughters sort of, okay, I'm independent, da 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 da. So I became and believed that I was independent. And I found the experience she was having was really, really, really a big deal in my life with her. And so, I was seeing this guy who was very handsome, a student. He was here from Iran. He had gone to boarding school since he was 11 in in England, and he decided to come here, and we hit it off. And I never really wanted to get married. I never saw it as part of my future. It was very different from what other women were thinking at the time, especially But I got married because you didn't just live with somebody at the time. You just wouldn't ever do that. That would be totally disrespectful. And it was something I wouldn't do. So we got married. We liked each other a lot, but we were 19. So needless to say, by the time you're 25, you even know that you're not the person you were when you were 19. And by the time you're 30, it's like, what? Who was I? What was I thinking? So by the time we were 29, we were the same age, we were such different people and we had such different lifestyle behavior. We had different 
goals, different, different dreams. And so leaving the business that I created and, and leaving that world was probably one of the hardest things I'd ever done in my life. But because I was an independent spirit, it was difficult for him. And a lot of guys sort of respond with women who are independent, even today, respond by cheating or doing things that create a false power. And so the relationship was very strained. And I realized from my own self-esteem, I had to leave the thing I loved the most, which was the business. And that was the biggest growing up time for me. And it also was a time, it was, you know, we're talking about the 70s. It was a time when women were not opening businesses. It just wasn't happening. I didn't know anybody in the fashion industry that was opening their business, but I didn't even think about it. I just thought, I love this so much. I'm going to make this happen. And so that transition of being married, starting a business, having this together, and then realizing from 19 to 29, we would not be the same people in the app by far we were not the same people. And so I had to figure out how I was going to evolve from there. And there was no way I could get a loan from the bank or no, no woman could get a loan from the bank, but a fashion designer who was a woman who definitely wouldn't, but even more so, I only had $98 to my name. So there was no... (laughs) No chance that there would be some institutional support for me to start a business. Wow. You you talked about this moment where the roof literally caved in on you in your store and everything changed for you that I think was the impetus of you you walking away and leading to the next bit. Can you can you talk about that moment? My husband at the time was dating one of the sales girls that I had fired and he rehired two times over. And then she decided one day that she would be doing some of the designing. And she came in, and I was very shy at the time. She came in to show me some of her ideas that she wanted me to make. And I just listened to her and looked at her. And when she left, like clockwork, the ceiling over my cutting table just fell onto my cutting table. And I thought, if anything is the sign that I need to get out of here, I think that was just the exclamation point on the dialogue that I just had with her. And so I left and the big lesson that I learned after I left is that I never talked to anybody at all about the problems I was having. I didn't, I was too embarrassed basically to tell anybody about it, even though I'm sure a lot of people knew. And I never met, I I didn't know our clients and I didn't know the press because 
he basically, that was what he did. And your husband. Yeah. But there was one, a woman from the LA Times who really persisted to reach out. We had scheduled the first lunch that I'd ever had with anybody from the press. And it was the next day, coincidentally. And so I didn't have a contact information for her. And so I met her at the restaurant and she looked at my swollen face from crying and she basically said, you know, what happened to you? And I told her, I literally shook as I told her because I'd never said, I'd never talked about it. And she said, well, I'm going to help you get some sewing machines. And I realized that if I spoke to people about what I needed, they could possibly help me. And I then decided I was going to reach out to friends and family to see if anybody would lend me money so that I could see about opening another store. And I had to learn how to tell my story. And as we know today, storytelling is really the key to opening the box, the the mystery, opening and connecting with people who have similar experiences. I did that and I did get help. And the other interesting thing that happened was there were a lot of other women who were feeling like they had enough with the status quo of their lives, whether it was with their husbands or whatever their situation was. And I got so many notes, handwritten notes from people, women telling me how what I had done inspired them. And that they were going to make changes in their lives too. And so this is the 70s. It was a very fertile time for change, for women, for gender, for so many things. And this was my experience during that time. And it became a part of the opportunity that I realized that I could have as a woman and that I I ended up creating for myself because of my pure determination, but mainly because I learned that once I could tell my story, I was connecting with people and that that was a really big, important thing to do. Mm. God, you, I heard you tell something similar to this and it is honestly the ethos of this program this is called let it out and it's because i have a tendency to hold things in and i believe as you just described that we all want to connect and we are interconnected and we do that by sharing you know what i call soft stories which are the stories that are vulnerable and bond us and when we tell them, we feel less alone and we can support each other. And I really love that and relate. And I'm I'm so happy that that happened for you. And it really speaks to your character too and, and how I know relationships are so important to you. And you talk about 
early on some of your clients, Bette Midler, I know narrated a fashion show for you early on and Farrah Fawcett obviously wore your iconic bathing suit. And you talk about never burning bridges and connection. And I, even in my life, you know, so far, everything good in my life has come through relationships. Can you talk about the relationships in your life and, and why you believe that connection and keeping it warm with people is so important? If you're 55 years in business, you're going to see some of the people that you saw early on. The circle is just so big, even though some of the experiences aren't all that pleasant. If you keep in mind that you will meet that person again, because I promise you, you do, I think then you always make sure that the door didn't slam and that whatever, however terrible it was, that there was at least respect in the way it was handled. And don't forget, there are a lot of bad experiences that come out of just a lack of your own experience when you start in business. So being graceful and being respectful, quite frankly, is a very important trait. And really, I think respect is the most important thing, no matter who it is you're working with. I will tell you, I groveling for me for many, many years, I realized that if I want to have the things I need for the company and my company is not a well-known brand and I don't have the gravitas of a, a famous brand and that I have to, I have to just sort of wait online and take my turn and do that. You have to do that. You can't be obnoxious or bully, but it doesn't mean you cower and you don't, you aren't driven to get what you want. It's just the style and the manner in which you do it. That is really, really important. I think that that's a very, very important thing to know. And especially when you make mistakes, you're embarrassed by it. And sometimes the behavior that goes with embarrassment isn't great. And people need to sort of regroup and think about the outcome of ending something on a bad note. It's never good. It's never worthwhile. It's always important to find a way to make it good. No matter what the the result is of the relationship, it's important that it ends with respect. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. Credit Karma, planning ahead for a big expense? Credit Karma can help you look for a low interest personal loan that could save you money while you pay off your purchase. If you're tired of juggling due dates, consolidating with a personal loan could be your answer. That way you'll just have one due date a month and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for you. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers. 
that are personalized so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you could get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances for approval so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free, it won't affect your credit scores, and you could save money. Credit Karma, apply with confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Today's show is also brought to you by a show that you also might like to listen to. It's called Asian Boss Girl. It's a podcast for the modern day Asian professional woman hosted by Melody Chang, Helen Wu, and Janet Wang. They started Asian Boss Girl as girlfriends while balancing jobs in finance, technology, and media with corporate careers spanning over a decade. What started as a passion project podcast turned into a multimedia business and they found themselves leaving their corporate jobs to grow this community full-time. Wow, that's really cool. Catch them as they learn to navigate the new world of entrepreneurship, saying goodbye to a stable paycheck and an employer-funded health insurance. Ooh, I know what that's like. It's very challenging. While they're sharing their experiences and exploring topics as 30-something Asian American women working, managing relationships, and living in Los Angeles, California. On their show, you'll find conversations about navigating the corporate world as a person of color, mental and emotional health as children of immigrants, interviews with inspiring Asian women and men, and even blind dates recorded on mic. Ooh. That's got to be good. You can check out all of their 150 plus episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So grab, as they say, a glass of wine or your Swiffer. Oh, that's so good. I love Swiffering, actually, and listening. If you're cleaning, you can listen. And let's get their show started. So it honestly sounds really cool. And I'm so excited to listen to myself and really grateful that they made it. Okay, back to this show you're listening to now. Stick around to the end because I will tell you who's coming up on the show for the next three weeks. But now back to my conversation with Norma. You talked about London being a cultural revolution when you were flying back and forth once a week and how you and Eddie were part of the counterculture back then. I'd love to know what that counterculture was. And now, where do you see us in a cultural revolution? Or what are some of our countercultures now? I'd love your thoughts, you know, as someone who has seen so much over your career, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about fashion now and and what you see. I was talking to some friends at the coffee shop this morning and I told them I was interviewing you and he was saying, you know, whatever drug is in style impacts fashion and the cultural climate and the political climate. And so I'd love to know if you see even any parallels between 
the revolution that was happening then and the countercultures back then and where we are now? Every decade is so different and each decade transitions further and further. It's like, are you the same person you were when you were 20 or 10 or, you know, like the changes are so huge that it's hard to compare except that now because we are so global and that we are connected so quickly globally, things happen faster, almost like a wildfire. So what was happening in London started festering and it took a while for it to start moving with music and all of that from London. Then it went to San Francisco and then it went through evolutions and that was really the baby boomer generation and that's my generation and so every generation has these wonderful things they do and then like what the hell did they do like then there's like the consequence of that generation so baby boomers really did not do anything that had happened before they saw a freedom, a lack of restrictions, an openness, make love, not war. That was really where we were at. We had lots of love in our hearts, lots of anti-war feelings, lots of peace, and the idea of the commune and helping one another and all of that was really pretty fabulous and in that sort of let it whatever let it be kind of attitude from whether it was drugs or whatever but the fashion became unconstructed deconstructed I don't think I wore underwear for years I I can't remember wearing underwear in the 70s it just was like no bra, no corset, no girdle. It was just the antithesis of that. And if you think about not wearing underwear, that the clothes over it also were very unconstructed and sort of easy, just really, really easy, but also incredibly expressive for men and women and creative things that you never saw a person wear, you were going to see. People wearing two different shoes of different colors, people wearing anything, but never wanting to look like somebody else, ever. Everybody had their own style, and every day they would think about a different way to wear what they loved, but they would never want to dress like anybody else. So that was a time for independence and free expression. And then the downside of the baby boomer is that there's a couple, but the shift to structure and how we do structure became sort of difficult to interpret. And whether it was in the way they parented or the way we just dealt with critical, you know, serious issues. There's a lot of question in the way that happened. But so much good was done in this free expression 
that the generations always come out ahead because of the change they make. So if you fast forward to millennials, to me, millennials just want convenience. They see shortcuts as don't waste time on things you don't need to do longhand. The internet, the ability to have this service of having clothes delivered to your home or having services, just having everything done in this efficient, fast, easy, taking life and putting the things that maybe are tedious into a shorter amount of your time and then more time into looking at life. I think some genius stuff was created and I'm enjoying all of the benefits of it myself. But then again, in this social media and the kind of communication we have because of social media is under duress. And while I think social media and communication communicating globally is fantastic in one respect where we learn more faster questioning the authority of the information the quality of the information the speed of the information and how we're manifesting it in our behavior is a really big controversial issue right now that we have to sort out I think Gen Z are, for me, one of my favorite generations because they're very similar in their spirit to baby boomers in that they don't have hard lines on gender, on religion, on anything that would separate people. They really want the best for the planet. They want the best for people. They care about things really from their their souls. They're very caring and nurturing. And in many ways, they're cleaning up a little bit of what millennials left behind in their technology boom, right? So millennials have done a great service and Gen Z are also doing a great service. They also don't need to have this life of man, wife, two to three children at a certain age. Millennials are very structured in that way where Gen Z may or may not get married, may or may not have kids, may or may not feel the need to follow those guidelines and create new ones. Many Gen Z that I know have two or three jobs, very different careers at the same time. I love the their approach to life. I love their spirit. And I think we're going to see a lot of great things as a result of what they're doing and what they will do. And then Alpha is the next generation after them. And If you look at all these little babies being born now, I swear to you, they look like they're fully matured. When you look in their eyes, you you could swear that they have an adult mind. And I wouldn't be surprised 
because they need to be as more evolved than any of us can imagine because of the world they're going to face when they're adult. So I think looking at each of the generations is a fascinating way to look at pop culture, look at the way we dress, why we why we dress a certain way. So you can imagine the way Gen Z dresses versus millennials. You can imagine the difference in their personalities just by what the obligation of each generation has and how they manifest it. Mm, yeah. With that, you know, there's, we talk about timeless with clothing and art and you tell this great story about walking down the street and seeing a great skirt and then realizing how well constructed it was and then noticing that it was your skirt from a really long time ago. And that skirt has had a life. And I think, you know, it's, it's the opposite of fast fashion, having things with longevity. So how do you, you know, with trends, right? Or with what you're seeing right now, post pandemic or whatever this this time period is, and you know, we hear a lot about a vibe shift or whatever counterculture revolution we're in. What's inspiring to you right now? And what if there's anything that you've seen so much that you you don't like and would like to see less of? Well, referring to that skirt, by the way, that was the very first piece of clothing I ever made for my store. Wow. So that wasn't just any skirt that I'd made. That was that was the first thing I ever made. And it was a suede calfskin that was um very sort of supple. And I had a hole puncher and I punched a whole bunch of holes and then I took strips of the calfskin, the suede, and I whip stitched it together. So it was all done by hand, no machine, no nothing. So I I really, first of all, I couldn't believe somebody actually bought something that I made. So that was such a huge experience for me. And then seeing, I remember it was a sunny day, it was like a spring day, and seeing this young girl who was probably in her teens, late teens, maybe 1920, gorgeous girl walking in the skirt. And seeing the skirt move and thinking how great that looked until I recognized that it was my skirt. And then I thought, here she is. That skirt probably was purchased by somebody in my age group who then probably either sold it to a vintage store or gave it to a friend or a daughter or someone who then maybe did something with it. And then this girl either was related to someone that had the skirt or found it at a vintage store. And she looked like a vintage girl She with the top she had on with it. And so I thought about the life of that skirt without me, without me being a part of it. It had this whole existence and it, experience different things with different people probably and to see it and talking about sustainable 
when clothes are timeless and they therefore are sustainable, that really has a lot of value in a lot of ways. For one, there's something about a piece of clothing that you love that's been around for a while. You can feel the history of it. It's like seeing an antique or seeing something or being in a space that has history. The other thing is that it's something you want to save. It's it's not something you're you get tired of and you want to throw it away. Like you don't want to throw away that skirt, but if you're if you grew out of it maybe or it's not appropriate in your life anymore, you'll find somebody to give it to. Or you'll make sure somebody can get it that would appreciate it, which might be a vintage store. So there's a tremendous amount of value in timeless style that's collectible, that's also, in the end, sustainable. Did you go up to her and, and tell her about your skirt? No, I was too embarrassed. I, as it is, I, I, I almost stalk people that, that are wearing things of mine. I really get very excited about it, but I didn't. I just remember standing still as she passed me and looking at her walk away and and really loving the skirt so much more than I I could imagine. But I I really started to think about the adventure of that skirt and what it might have seen. Um, and I was really happy about it. But I do get a tremendous amount of pleasure out of seeing people in my clothes. But it hasn't been until recently that I've been able to appreciate it on a global scale. I would see my clothes photographed on celebrities in magazines, obviously. But with social media, I'm able to see people all around the world who are wearing my clothes and, and who tag me. I'm able to see how they look, what they chose, the way they chose to take the photograph. And I am so blown away and so appreciative to be able to see this and witness what I'm doing and how it's manifesting itself around the world. And it really is such a pleasure to see that, to see all the different types of women and everybody's personal style just presented, not only in the way they're wearing it, but in the way they decided to take the photograph. Mm, yeah. What else inspires you right now? Or where do you draw inspiration just in general? Probably a very important ingredient is to be absolutely informed about the social, economic, political time we live in. This is a huge part of why people behave the way they do. So if there's inflation, something's going to happen. If there are economic issues, something's going to happen prices, maybe people will buy luxury, but it's a certain group of people, people that are have a tighter budget are going to think about the way they buy things and what they buy in a different way than they might if in a more 
positive time where the economy is flowing in a better way. If there's a pandemic and people have to stay in their homes, what are they wearing in their homes? How are they living in their homes? What are they thinking about? You have to, you have to address that. So we address that right away. Comfortable things that you can hang around in that you can throw in the washing machine and not spend a lot of money on. Then as COVID, I don't even know if we're post COVID yet, to be honest. Katie, I swear I'm convinced we are in sort of a limbo state. We're not going to know for quite some time whether COVID is actually leaving, but we are in a more open time. And for all the people who saved those parties and weddings and everything else, it was clear that dresses were going to be of interest. And so thinking about dresses, thinking about what those dresses needed to be, what they needed to serve. So having a sense of what's going on in the world is really, really important. Not to mention, not to forget the fact that there is a tragedy happening in Ukraine. So we have sanctions in Russia, but what does that mean as far as the economy goes? Where where are things going to be made? What are these sanctions affecting? What does the price of oil mean to everyone? How is how are people going to spend money and the choices they're going to make when they spend it? So it's one thing to be creative, but to be creative in a vacuum is not relevant. So to be creative, you need to be informed and to be very aware of what is happening in people's lives. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. You you when you were talking about Gen Z, you were saying how they have this different perspective and timeline around marriage and love and what they think that society deems important or what we have to do and you were saying that millennials have a more antiquated view of that and I'm a millennial and I I really liked the way you described Gen Z. I I would like to adapt that that mindset. Well, you, you might be you might be on the cusp of um so first of all, I don't think um millennials point of view is antiquated. I think it fits the comfort zone of millennials that there's there's a safe place in the structure of having getting a home, get doing all of these things. However, millennials are very stressed out about how difficult it is for right for them right now to buy that house, to have as many kids as they planned, to do all of these things because it's a tough time. And if you're a millennial, you're you're you could be struggling right now to make ends meet or to get all of these things that you'd planned and decided on, and that's the structure of your life. So what does happen between generations is there's this crossover period where Gen Z and millennials sort of blend 
before it goes fully into the next generation. So there's a lot of blur and blend in some of the years between millennial and Gen Z. I'm not sure where you are in that, but it's possible that there are millennials that have a lot of Gen Z characteristics and there are Gen Z who have some millennial characteristics until it becomes fully Gen Z. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Well, I would like to have more Gen Z characteristics, but what you were saying about feeling, you know, outside of or in the counterculture of your generation in terms of not having the ambition to get married or the, you know, I think again, like so much of it is out of your, our control. And it's not necessarily that I don't want those things. Maybe that's part of it or some of it, but I think like you were saying, at least, you know, definitely in the house realm or financially, some of those things might not be possible for me ever. And having to renegotiate what I thought and and same thing, like, I don't know if I want to have a kid or not, but it also just might not be possible for me or I might not want to do it by myself or whatever. And that's okay. And, and I think hearing stories of people doing things differently. I have a friend here who, who is my age, who is a, a millennial and a couple actually of not a couple, but several friends who really prioritize dating or if they're not prioritizing dating are really actively wanting to have kids in a house and a family and these things that we saw growing up, but might not be possible for, for our generation and, or are just different And I have really accepted that in a way that I don't know what else to do. It seems like the path of least resistance to just be like, all right, well, this is the way the cookies crumbled for me. And a person who did this podcast, her name's Kayleen Schaefer, and she wrote this book. It's called But You're Still So Young. And it it outlines the decade of your 30s and how sociologists in the 1950s had these five markers of adulthood and it was finishing school, becoming financially independent, having a kid, getting married and moving away from home, I think. And maybe I put that on there twice. But anyway, some of these things because of, you know, to your point of economically and the situation that we're in might not be possible for us. And I think taking the approach of not putting ourselves in these boxes feels so much more freeing and you've talked about you know being on a different timeline and things taking longer or finding love later can you talk about that and has that ever been something you've had to wrestle with in your brain of comparing yourself to someone else's timeline or the societal norm of a timeline well i think historically family expectations for their daughters, especially, is that they'll be taken care of. They'll get married and they'll be taken care of and they'll have babies and then everybody will be happy. So I don't know how happy (laughs) you are being taken care of by someone because I think there's, I, I believe that a partnership is healthier 
Because if you have to take care of someone, sooner or later, there's you're going to have to ask permission or there's going to be a hierarchy. And I think a partnership is always healthier. So having a partnership instead of the old idea, you're going to marry this guy, he's going to take care of you, and then you'll have babies and you'll live happily ever after. There is a very strong chance of problems coming into anybody's life. So happily ever after is fiction. It's, it's, you'll live life after. And the parents' idea and the people who love you's idea for you has such a strong impact on the way we identify ourselves that Throughout my childhood and growing up, I remember being asked or talked and told about when you get married and have kids, and all I could think of was, well, I'm not getting married and I'm not going to have kids, so I'm not going to have to worry about that. The idea of being loved, on the other hand, is the bigger, the bigger challenge, the bigger problem that women especially deal with. We, and so much of it has to do with our relationship with our fathers, whether we had a father, were abandoned by a father, had a father who loved us or a father who didn't love us, whatever it is, the relationship we have with our father and the love you get from your father or you expect to get from your father or you get you don't get because you didn't have a father, all of that affects our need for love. Women need to be loved on a level that men can never understand. So we need love so desperately that we will even allow ourselves to be objectified for love. If you think of Bridesmaids, that film, and I think of John Hamm with Kristen Wiig and how she allowed herself to be objectified because of the chance that sooner or later she would get him to fall in love with her or her delusional mind convinced her that. So we do things and we've all done things to objectify ourselves for the love of a man or whatever we thought was going to happen. So that's one of the signs. The other is we, it seems that women want to get married. They want to have the biggest ring possible to show how much that person loves her. Look at how much he loves me. See how big this ring is? That's how much he loves me. That's how much he spent this much money to show how much he loves me. Have to have the biggest wedding, the best gown, because this is show of how much I am loved. We are obsessed with having to be loved by some guy who is supposedly going to make us feel special because we feel loved. The only love that's going to make us feel special is the love we show ourselves first. Until we really believe in how we care about ourselves and the way you treat ourselves, we will never be treated with the love we really want and the respect we deserve by anybody. 
And you won't need a ring. You won't need a wedding. You won't need all of those things because you will experience love in the way you should have it in what you deserve. And from that, you will then decide, is this the person I want to have a child with? Or maybe we love each other so much. We enjoy traveling. We enjoy being together. Maybe we don't want to have children. Maybe we'll have dogs instead. Maybe we'll do whatever. All of those things come together in time. You can never project love. You can never project project who that person is and how you'll feel about them and what you want, how you want to spend your life with them. And maybe there also may be the thing that you don't spend your entire life with one person. That's a big freaking deal since we're all living so much longer. How do you spend, how, first of all, spending 10 years from 19 to 29 with one person? Impossible from 19 to 29. And each decade, we have different growth patterns. We have different needs, different desires. It may or may not work with the person you chose 10 years before, and maybe it will. But having this expectation that it has to be forever is also very unrealistic in this day and age. It doesn't make sense to have all of these preconceived notions of happiness that don't necessarily apply anymore. But if you don't love yourself, truly love yourself, respect yourself, you will not attract the right person for you that will respect you in the same way you respect yourself. And that is the key to making the decision about having a partner, the kind of relationship you want to have with that person. So this pre-planning for this is really hard. And for me, I had relationships. I didn't marry anybody along the way. None of them were really, I didn't think I would spend the rest of my life with. But I met my soulmate at 65. What does that mean? It's crazy, right? How unpredictable that is. What, what, what do you do when you meet your soulmate at 65? Well, you just, what do you like doing together? What are the things you enjoy and you define it by the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to make these plans about happily ever after in your 20s and your 30s. It's very hard. And I think focusing on self-love and self-esteem is the key to drawing the right people to you. If there's a weakness in that area, you're going to draw people to you who take advantage of that weakness. And that's a really important thing to that think to think about. So the idea of allowing yourself to be objectified or objectifying yourself to be with someone, that's not the recipe for anything long lasting. That's the recipe for being taken advantage of. And people sense that, and there are people who do that. So clearly, the dilemma of being single in a time where 
happiness is very often shown by the fact that you are loved. Therefore, you're married, you have a big ring, and that's happy. That's not necessarily the way it works. Yeah. Oh, I really loved that. I mean, I, I've i definitely, I don't necessarily want the the ring or the big fancy wedding, but I would like partnership and companionship. But when I really think about it, I have that and I have that through friendships and I have that through community. And I also know that because I feel supported and I've learned how to support myself, I, you know, I think in a way similar to you, I've, I've, I've had relationships, but not very many. And I have accepted crumbs, right. Of being like, I'll take these crumbs and I'll try to make a meal of it. And with low self-worth and, it's very inspiring and feels really great to hear that you found someone you want to spend time with because I think the the one thing about I, I'm still figuring that bit out, the self-worth bit and the learning to like myself bit. I'm I'm very much still still figuring that out. But I think from being alone for so long and living alone and working alone, I get into these patterns of and i'm wondering if if this is something that that you ever experienced where what's cool about being in a relationship or cohabitating even with someone is that you have to compromise right like you have to constantly be present and considering someone else's needs and feelings and emotions and I'm noticing about myself not living with roommates and being on my own. I have these quirks that I used to see in women in my life. I come from, I, I'm around a lot of single women who live alone and, and don't really date or have never married and wonderful people. But I would notice some things about them that were very different from from people in relationships. And I'm seeing those things in myself, which which becomes uncomfortable. And I notice that it's I grow so much when I'm in a relationship because relationships are mirrors and they they force growth. So my question for you, you've been in a relationship these last several years. But before that, you were single and in relationships on and off. Did you ever notice that, what I'm trying to describe? Absolutely. And don't worry about it because when you're with somebody you care about, you will compromise. You will, you won't be so stuck to your habits and your routine. You just won't. I mean, it's not even something to think about or worry about. Just I think what's really important is making sure that you're meeting people and getting out there and being social. And I mean, joining, doing things that you you've never thought you would be interested in doing, volunteering, but in areas that you really like, I mean, the things that you have interest in. And becoming a part of it. I don't know, maybe there's some film school or some acting class or a cooking class, whatever. Do those things because what happens is 
it takes you out of the world that you're comfortable in, which may end up being your house. And it may take you into places that really expand your friendships, but also your experiences. And that's really, really valuable. Traveling is another great way to meet people. But I really think getting out there and being very aggressive about just different different things. I mean, even if you volunteer for something for the Ukraine or whatever the thing that is really touching your heart, find out where you can go to do something like that. What happens is you'll meet other people who are following their heart also, which means you have something in common. And that opens the door to a different perspective on people and what your life is about. I really believe the more experiences you have, the better your judgment is about what it is you want in your life. And even these dating apps, I'm all for them because they're like, they're like job interviews and you're doing the interviewing. They're not interviewing you. You're doing the interview. And by doing that, it helps you re- rethink what you wrote about yourself, the photos you chose of yourself, how you see yourself and you want others to see you. I have a friend who I said to her, why are you meeting all the, these guys that are just so not what you're about? I don't know what's going on. I said, show me the pictures that you posted. And there are pictures of her that I've never, I know her for years. I've never seen her look like any of those pictures. And I said, what, what are you doing? Like, what the hell? Who, who is this girl? And she said, well, these are the pictures that attract a lot of responses. I said, from idiots, obviously. <laughs> like, why, why are you doing this? I said, you don't, you don't wear makeup. You don't wear red lipstick. Why, why are you wearing red lipstick in these pictures? I, I, you work out all the time. There's nothing about working out. Don't you want a guy who works out, who's healthy, who's like into the things you're in? So really evaluating how you're picturing yourself, how you're defining yourself in this, and then interviewing these people and learning from the interviews what you absolutely do not want and what you might actually like and you had never considered. So, and even if nothing comes of any of them, the experience of all of those meetings is incredibly valuable because it helps, it gives you expertise in what it is you want and what you expect. And it also gives you expertise in really taking a good look at yourself and defining yourself, not only in how you write about yourself, but the pictures you choose. It's like, is this like a sex kitten that you're presenting and that's nothing like who you are or what what's what's the point of misrepresenting? You're going to get these people who are expecting something quite different. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, few on I don't have to like worry about you know getting stuck in my ways and being a little like I'm glad that 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 you say that will even out. I think it's it's interesting that you 
you brought up volunteering and you, you brought up the dating apps because my friend Crystal gave me similar advice. She was like, at the beginning of this year, I said my word of the year was going to be flexibility. And she was like, oh, that's great for you because if you want to meet someone or start dating someone, you need to start doing things you don't want to do. And I didn't really know what she meant at first, but it's not like flexibility of, you know, changing my schedule or being spontaneous. It's more being able to, you know, out of the pattern of, of what I'm doing day to day and meeting someone on a dating app is uncomfortable or but I, I recently took them down because I was just like, Oh my God, this is so embarrassing and nauseating. And I just didn't want to do it. But I think the same thing as I started volunteering at this amazing organization, 826, do you know about them? It's Dave Edgar's Anyway, I, I do writing tutoring and, and same thing. I, I, I was really excited on my first day and really like, this is going to be so fun and it's going to be great. And it, it brought up a lot of like uncomfortable feelings of childhood and it made me feel sort of weird. And I told Christ, Crystal this and she was like, that's exactly why you should keep doing it. And that's exactly why you should keep going because it grows our threshold for uncertainty. And, you know, I think I can get a little bit comfortable in my very comfortable existence on my own. And if I want to stay like that, great. But if I want to expand, then, you know, and, and travel obviously does that too. And anyway, thank you. That It was- goes back to, it goes back to the more you can do, the more you do, the more you can yeah. do. So the more of these things you do, the more you'll be able to do, and you'll be able to see where your interests are expanding. And I think that everything you're saying, probably anybody who's listening to this is is experiencing the same thing. And did I experience the same thing? Yes. Did hundreds of thousands of millions of other women experience it? Yes. But when it's your own experience, it's very painful. It's very difficult. Feeling not loved when everybody else is feeling loved and feeling fabulous, which is not true because everybody else is not, but your your thoughts are that they are and that you're being left out and that your youth is, is fading away, even though you're 25 or 35, is fiction. It's just not even worth putting it in into your head to think that way. So I I think... There's an adventure out there of lots of adventures, and you have to experience them and as many as possible so that the choices you make are the best choices for you. And the dating app may or may not prove successful. It doesn't matter. It's the experience of interviewing candidates to be someone you share an experience with or many experiences with, everything should be not the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. All of it should be part of your life experience. And I think there's only good that can come from it. Even if it's bad experiences, you know, okay, I don't want that done. It's not worth a tear. It's not worth being pissed off. Just it's worth a good laugh, maybe, which is what you share with your girlfriends. Give yourself the opportunity to have a lot of experiences. Don't feel 
for one, that there's one person for you for the rest of your life. I don't believe that that's possible. I think it could happen, but it wouldn't be the thing that you're sure is going to happen. And even the person that has the biggest ring, had the biggest wedding, may not be 100% happy because she didn't do enough investigating to discover the kind of person she needed to be with. She just was looking at a timeline that was prescribed for her, and she met the timeline. So always just stay within your view of what is going to make you happy. And the only way you're going to know that is to have experiences. So you're going to do What sign are you? Taurus. My birthday's coming up. Well, happy birthday. That's your new, that's your birthday plan for the year. Oh, thank you. You mentioned aging with this because I think that is the, where the urgency comes from is this, you know, physical and our society beauty standards. What would be your greatest lesson on aging? I'll start by saying when I was 20, I, I cried on my 20th birthday. My mother told me it's all downhill from here. And I really believed her. I really felt like I was, I was aging. I wasn't, I wasn't a teenager anymore that now the, the pro, the aging process was just going to speed ahead. And I was just going to be this old person. And I did not want to be this old person. So. When you're 30 and you feel like you're aged out of the dating market, it's as profound, right? And when you're aged out of a marriage, it's profound. All of these negative aging images are very, very negative. And the idea of skin wrinkling in our culture is just so forbidden that anti-aging, anti-wrinkle is sort of on everybody's tongue when it comes to how you define beauty. But the truth is that beauty is really so much more than how you look. You can look beautiful at any age, but youthful beauty has its consequences because it doesn't have the experience of time. So you can be at your most beautiful, but because you're naive, you're being taken advantage of, you're being objectified, and you're feeling shitty about yourself. But when you start feeling better about yourself, you have more control over your destiny. You have more control over your choices. You have more knowledge about your choices. You have a better sense of self. And you never want to trade that for youth, ever. I have no desire to be 30, 40. I, I don't want any of those decades again. I did them. I went through the pain and the growth and the transition. I did them. And now I'm benefiting from life's experience and feeling very grateful for the sense of self that I have at this point. So for people to mourn the loss of their childhood when they were not really at their most intelligent and experienced and when they probably were taken advantage of the most is really a misconception. So you think every year 
that goes by that makes you smarter. But unless you, you add more experiences to your life, you're denying yourself the combination of your youth and experience coming together, right? So those experiences are critical so that you can have a more informed youth. Yeah, I, I mean, I I can't thank you enough for that and and everything you shared. I mean, I experienced that in a in a small way when I was my most sick in a eating disorder sort of a way, like in treatment. I got the most compliments from society and from people, and I was in a terrible place mentally. <laughs> so it it can really warp our perspective of you know what what beauty is and where it comes from and outside validation. Yeah, definitely. It's really so much about the self and everybody is burdened with their own issues, their own sense of self. The name of my book is I Am Invincible, not because I feel I'm invincible, but there are those days where I do feel invincible and I'd like more of them. So I wrote a book about that so that you can work on creating more of those days. But when you do have a great day like that, you realize your power. So there's so much to work on, but all of us have so many things that we question about ourselves and about our motivations and our goals. We all have so much in common, more in common in our insecurities than we do in what we believe are other people's successes. You know, the idea that everybody else is living a happy life because they're taking a great picture on Instagram or one of those is definitely not what we we should look at as the ideal. So you're on the case. Now let's see how you do this birthday year. You have a lot, a lot to a lot to do this year ahead. Well, I can't thank you enough for everything that you shared and and being here and I taking so much time. I'm I'm truly so grateful. And the name of the show is Let It Out. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you that you want to share? Anything that you never get to talk about? No, I think your interview was really good. And you personalized it in a way that I think will be helpful for a lot of people. So I think making sure that people who could benefit from it get to hear it is a really good idea. Well, thank you so much. We we end letting out a deep breath together. Do you have a second to sigh with me? Okay. <laughs> Inhale. Let it out. <sighs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm Take so care. grateful. Have an amazing rest of your day. You too. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. That was my conversation with Norma Kamali. If you liked it, please share it with a friend. Share it with anyone who you think would also like this show. It really helps so much by bringing more people to it so I can keep doing it. And I used to say who was coming up on the show next week at the end, but lately I haven't quite known. I haven't been as organized, but you know what? This week I can tell you. In fact, until the next couple, next week is a very special episode. My annual 
episode with my, we call her my non-birth mom, Sasha Jones. If you've been here for a while, you definitely know Sasha. So she will be hosting the show next week. It's because it's my birthday and we do an annual birthday special. So please tune in for that. And here's a fact about Sasha. Speaking of Bill Cunningham earlier in this episode, Sasha had her photo taken by Bill Cunningham and he sent her a letter as well as the cutout image and a different image that he took of her on her bike. And it's a two-page spread in the Bill Cunningham coffee table book, if you happen to have it. Or if you're like me, every time you go into a bookstore, you open up that book to that page so others can enjoy the photograph. I'm really grateful that I get to do this. I'm really grateful that you're here. After the episode with Sasha, the next two weeks, I think I'm going to break it up into two. I have another fashion designer who I believe is iconic. My friend Sam, Sam Salad actually is his pseudonym. And he is a friend of mine, has a store down the street, and he's the founder of Meals Clothing and a really fun person. He came over to my apartment a couple weeks ago and brought rum and we recorded for hours. And I'm really happy that we did and that you're going to get to eavesdrop on that conversation. And then we have a lot more, many, obviously, you know, I'm going to keep doing this for, well, we'll see. (laughs) I'd like to share one more story that I found in my research about Norma Kamali that stuck out to me and she talks a lot about relationships and how important they have been to her in her career and sharing and how that bonds us and I mention how that's really the ethos of this program you're listening to now why it's called let it out and I came up with something called soft stories a couple years ago when I tried to make a magazine and failed and anyway Soft Stories was the concept of, I believe, when we vulnerably share, it connects us and makes us feel less alone. And my cousin helped me write something about that, which I'll link to here. But all of this to say, one last story I'll share with you about Norma and her character is a recent story, not something historical. And she has this dress. It's called the All-in-One. And much like the sleeping bag coat, it's something that is really specific to her and that was her creation and her design and recently someone made a website and came into her shop and i heard her tell this story on another podcast and i just want to tell you because we didn't get to it so this person this young designer makes a dress that fully copies the all-in-one norma kamali dress and someone from her company sees it the CMO or CFO to be honest I'm not exactly even sure what those acronyms stand for sometimes and the point is they file this huge lawsuit it's a whole big thing and you know what Norma does in the end she says actually turns out I'm in charge and I'd like us to drop all the charges and I'd like you to send her this pattern because she's doing it all wrong and not all wrong, but she could do it better and I could help her and I would like to and it's really not that big of a deal and we don't need to do this to this person. And that's really all you need to know. I mean, I really liked that and I think you might too. 
Okay, again, I am, I really love doing this and I would like to keep doing it, I think. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be cool. Um, or wherever you're listening and share it with a friend. Oh, if you want to get my newsletter, I sent one out this week that was really personal and took me forever to write. <laughs> but I loved all the messages I got about it. So if you got it, thank you for sending me those. Me- I mean, I responded to all of them. So, And if I haven't yet, I will respond to you. I love you. I'm so grateful if you want to get my newsletter or get the show notes sent right to you. The Let It Out letter link is available to you. I will talk to you next week with Sasha and then with Sam and... Oh, we're not doing an emoji anymore because I got sick of that. But why don't you write whatever your favorite item of clothing is that you own on my Instagram. To be honest with you, I haven't been going on there for weeks at a time. But, you know, it'll be a nice surprise when I do get on there. And on Norma's Instagram, she'll be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Maybe she'll know. Maybe she'll listen. Who knows? Hi, Norma. I love you. Okay. Talk to you next week and bye-bye.